Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Tony Jones is in the building, and we are here to talk Western Conference bold predictions. I love it. Tony, you're back. This is the first time on video with you. What's going on, man? You get hoodie Tony tonight. I, I get hoodie Tony tonight? What, what kind of... What kind of similarities is that to Hoodie Mello? That means we shoot a lot and don't play any defense. <laughs> All right, let me stop. I love that. That's a that's a great take. That's a great that's, take because we are going to shoot some shots up. tonight. You know what? I apologize to Mello. You play plenty of defense. You play plenty of defense over the last 19 years. Who am I to say you don't play any defense? <laughs> well, the, the part that we're going to focus on is shooting the shot, I think, because yes. at the end of the day, what this podcast is about, we're doing the second half of the Game Theory Podcast's second half preview of Bold Predictions. And the idea here is that we're going to shoot our shot with some wild takes that may come true, maybe won't come true. But, you know, the idea here, again, as I outlined last time, is we're going to try and say things that are a little bit off the wall and then talk about them in terms of whether or not they're overreactions, whether or not they are uh, like even real possibilities and just kind of discuss real things that are going on within the NBA and have a fun conversation with it. Uh, if one of these four things happens, it's a win. It feels like for me that that was the goal I went into last time when I said that uh, the Boston Celtics will win two playoff series this year. Uh, that feels aggressive based on the fact that they are the fifth seed in the East. They're playing great, but nonetheless. So to give that introduction I just want to see Tony, man. Like, what, what's been going on? It's been it's been a while. Yeah, tell tell the people, you know, tell the listeners, man. You're busy. I'm busy. We've been, uh, you know, doing our thing. So, you know, we're back, baby. We're here. Game theory. There is no question that we're going to talk about the draft at the end of this episode. But in order to do that, let's get into Western Conference predictions now. So, my first Western Conference bold prediction. Uh, I think we're going to get some clarity on what's going on with Zion Williamson before the end of the year. And for Pelicans fans, that has to feel pretty bold because right now Zion Williamson is, uh, it feels MIA uh, from the organization and it feels very unclear what's going to happen with him uh, at this point. Like I feel bad for Pelicans fans, to be honest, they are kind of being left in the lurch. Uh, obviously this has been in the news throughout the course of the week due to JJ Reddick's statements in the media regarding Zion being a detached teammate. And for JJ Reddick to come out and say that, was kind of staggering to me. Like JJ doesn't pull punches. So it wasn't like a total, like unbelievable stunner, but you kind of think of the power dynamics there. I mean, like JJ Reddick had his own issues with the David Griffin front office. Uh, he's certainly not going to be doing them or trying to do them any favors. Both Zion and JJ are rep by CAA. Like you would think that uh, CAA was probably not particularly pleased by JJ coming out and setting that on fire a little bit. But when you look at it, I mean, I don't blame him. It's hard for me to come out and say like JJ Redick is in the wrong here when he was literally Zion's teammate. And when 
we just don't know what's going on. Like this entire situation, I've called it at differing times, the most bizarre situation that I can remember in recent league history. But my prediction here is that by the end of game 82, the Pelicans will have a better understanding of where they stand with Zion Williamson. I think the pressure is going to get too strong. Uh, and the outside factors coming from outside of the organization into them, pressuring them to figure out what's happening with this situation are going to become too real and we are going to find out more. Uh, is that, is that too bold of a proclamation, Tony, or are we going to continue to live into the, to live in the lurch with Zion Williamson before uh, the off season begins? Well, I think the Zion Williamson has us um, headed towards a lockout. So that's that's my <laughs> Zion Williamson thought. Um, well, it, expand because you know. that's that's very. Uh, I don't think that you're wrong because I've had three well, or four other people text me that. To be honest, well, just you know, I mean, you know, it's. I think owners don't like it that you know stars are able to get out of their con get out of teams in the middle of their second contracts, but stars starting to push their way out of town, you know, on, you know, in the middle of their first contracts, I think that that's going to be a tipping point. And I think that that's going to be, um, I think that that's going to be a deal breaker. And I think it's going to lead to an ugly, ugly CBA negotiation. Um, I think the owners are going to push to get some of this, push really hard to get some, some, some kind of player control back because, you know, guy. You know whether Zion comes back and plays another game for New Orleans or not. I happen to think that he will. You know, just the fact that, you know, the, this is clearly, you know, you know, a message sent from Zion to to management. You know that he's not happy with his situation. You know, in his first contract. You know, in his first contract, while he's played like eighty five of a possible what two hundred games. Something um, like that. You know, it's just, you know, I, I just don't think that the owners are going to take it well, and and I think, um, I think that you know, you know, if you, you you get people pushing their way out, you know, right before their third contract, middle of their second contract, you know, I think the owners are like, okay, we don't like this, but you know, we'll we'll roll with it. It kind of is what it is, you know. Guys starting to, you know. To, to kind of buck the organization, um, you know, in the middle of first, in the middle of rookie deals, you know, I think that that's, that's, that's just, that's just kind of going too far for the, in, in the, in the uh, minds of the owners. So, um, you know, the, the design thing, I, I think is going to really lead to some hard line stances uh, once the, once the CBA is up and we're negotiating a new deal. I think that that's right if it continues down the road that it's on. I, I do agree with you that I think he's going to play for the Pelicans again. And the reason that I think that is there is enough uncertainty surrounding him now to where if he wouldn't play for the next, I don't know, year, year plus, before they traded him or before he uh, signed somewhere else as a restricted free agent. I am unconvinced someone would give him a full max contract at that number. Zion Williamson is to me, one of the 10 most talented players in the NBA and he's undoubtedly worth a max contract. 
but I think he needs to play in order to actually confirm that he's going to get that money. He needs to prove again to people, hey, I can do this over the long haul. He still hasn't really done it over the long haul. And at the end of the day, the thing that people are concerned about with Zion Williamson is that continued ability to stay on the court. If you can't stay on the court long term, it's going to be very difficult for teams to be willing to give you 35 to $45 million a year over that max deal. I think he has to play again. I think he probably has to play again for the Pelicans because what do you even think the trade market looks like for Zion Williamson right now? Because I, I don't, I don't know. Like if you're Oklahoma city, like I saw Andrew Schlecht and um, Alex Spears talk about this on their down to dunk show uh, earlier this week, please go check them out. Cause they're both terrific. But like they brought up giving up one of Shea Gilgis Alexander or Josh Giddy for Zion Williamson. Would you give up Shea Gilgis Alexander for Zion Williamson at this point? I- I'm like the idea of it. Like, I think, I, I think I would, but I'm not sure every executive would at the end of the day. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Not even close. Like, I I think it depends on what your organizational situation is, maybe. Uh, It doesn't depend on anything for me. I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up SGA for for Zion. I mean, there's there's some I, I have some real issues with Zion's game at this point. Um, even even fully healthy, you know, you know, pr- probably the biggest of which he's an absolute turnstile defensively. So, yeah. um, you know, even when he was on the floor, you know, fully healthy, you know, I've seen team after team target him defensively because he doesn't take ownership on that end. You know, offensively, he's great. He's one of, you know, the Zion at his best is probably one of the best interior finishes I've ever seen. And, yep. you know, he can finish in traffic. He can finish over bigger guys. Um, you know, I thought that the the Stan Van Gundy idea to use him as a, a point power forward was, was you know, pretty smart. No, I, I yep. think it maximized him. Um, you know, but, you know, he, he just doesn't defend. Like, you know, it's not like, he doesn't defend a little bit. He doesn't defend at all. And, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, his defense negates his offense. And that's hard to do for as good an offensive player that he is. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, you know, if you're building a winning team around him, um, you've got to surround him with all kinds of defenders and shooters and guys who don't need the ball. Um, you've got to build your team in a very specific way around around the player that he is now. Now, if he comes back and he says, okay, I give a shit defensively and I'm going to get competitive defensively, and, you know, and do some things, um, you know, then, then that conversation changes. But right now, I mean, he's, you know, he's such a net negative defensively that, you know, it it takes away from all of the good that it gives you offensively. And um, Shea Gilgis-Alexander plays. Not only is he a good defender, 
Uh, not only is he a really good offensive player, he plays um, a more important position um, in this in the grand scheme of things in today's NBA. Um, you know, I think it's easier to build around him. You know, so until you know, if Zion, if 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 Zion became, you know, just if he became a five defensively instead of the one or the two defensively that he is. Like, he doesn't even have to be an eight or a nine. He just needs to be a five. If yeah. he became a five defensively, then, yeah, he's probably one of the, the 10 or 15 best players in the league. And, you know, there's not very many people that you that that you give up on. But until he starts to, to, to care at least a little bit defensively, um, then, you know, he's, you know, he does – he he his his numbers are, are pretty hollow because they don't lead to wins. Well, and it's it's hard because I think that ultimately it's all connected, right? Because if you're trading for Zion Williamson, you're betting on his conditioning improving. Like that that's just it, period. Right? Like if you are trading for Zion, you are saying, Hey, we think this guy can stay in condition. We think that he can you know, continue to keep weight off. And I think that that's the biggest part of his defense. Like, I feel like he has to take plays off defensively in order to maintain his offensive, just firepower and athleticism. Uh, it's all a bet on Zion as a person. And like you talk to people that were around him at Duke, you talk to people that are around him, like on the AAU circuit, like everyone talks about him, like he's a phenomenal human being. So for this to have happened, for it to have turned as quickly as it has, it, it's bizarre. It, I, I'm not sure I can remember a situation quite like this one in terms of just the sheer strangeness of the entirety of the like uh, the extremity of the situation. Like when he's on the court, he's one of the best scorers in the NBA and he's 21 years right. old when he is, right. you know, on the court, I mean, he's one of the worst the, defenders like in the 20, NBA. 26, 27 points per game on like some, yeah. something like 60% shooting. Like, it's, yes, it's, it's like, he's an unreal finisher. Like he's yes. literally one of the best finishers I've ever seen. Um, his volume at the rim, yeah, mixed with his percentage at the rim, like our partner Seth Partnow has done a lot of research on this, and his numbers are like staggering in right. terms of the amount of offense he creates at the basket. Uh, it's hard. Like if you're the Pelicans, what, how do you handle this situation? Because I feel like that's that's maybe the place to end this conversation before we move into your bold predictions, like. If you are the New Orleans Pelicans, how do you handle this? Do you look to move him this offseason? Um, if he comes back to you and says, I want traded, do you just move him at that point, even though his value is probably tanked? You can't I don't know. I, I don't think you can move him. I mean, like, I, I don't think you can move Zion Williamson for, for 30 cents on the dollar right now. I mean, you know, this is, you know, he could sit out, and, and it's different than Ben Simmons, right? Like, you – you know, Ben Simmons, you knew that Ben Simmons is in great shape. Like you, you know, the Nets know that they can, that, you know, they acquire him, they throw him as a five on fives for, you know, a week or two and, and he's good to go. You know, Zion hasn't been durable to this point. Um, he's, you know, he's had footed injuries and, 
feet and bigs, you know, uh, historically haven't mixed. Um, you know, he plays a, a game that's predicated on violence on his feet. So that makes me even more worried about, uh, about the foot injury that's kept him out all year. Um, you know, he's, he hasn't been able to, to kind of play at his ideal plan weight, which is probably around 255. Um, you know, so there's just a lot. There's just so many different question marks. You know, if you're a team that wants to trade for Zion Williamson, that's like, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing out, you know, my A or B package for him. I'm putting out my C package. Um, and, you know, I think that if you're David Griffin, if Zion Williamson came to you tomorrow and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out, I want to be traded, and, you know, obviously it'll get out at some, at some point, then, you know, I'm willing to guess that, you know, eight out of every 10 offers would be predatory um, yeah. of the situation instead of, you know, instead of, okay, we want to work with you and like do a trade for equal value. So, you know, if, if you're David Griffin, especially Zions, you know, he's, he's, you know, in his rookie deal, you have team control over him for, you know, another five years, theoretically, uh, unless he decides to take the qualifying offer. And that's just not smart as I am to take the qualifying offer when he hasn't been be able crazy. to stay on the floor. Right. It'd, It'd be, be crazy. crazy. Right. Like if so. they offer him a max contract and it's $200 million, something like that. Like, I, and by the way, like, I, I'm, this is no statement on whether or not the Pelicans should or should not offer him that deal. Uh, I mean, based off of talent, they should. I mean, we've seen enough, in my opinion, to where uh, if you're willing to bet on Zion Williamson, you're betting on the conditioning and thus you're uh, betting on his defense improving, I think, through conditioning. But, like, I, I, I just – he would be nuts based off of where he's at now to turn down $200 million, regardless of who it came from. Like it'd be absolutely insane of him to do that. I just, I don't know. I feel bad for Pelicans fans. Like this is a, this is such a complicated situation for them. Uh, this is such a complicated situation for the Pelicans. This is a team that hasn't like, they didn't make great moves this off season outside of the Herb Jones draft pick, which was phenomenal. Um, Kyra Lewis is obviously out for the year. Their lottery pick last year. Uh, Jackson Hayes is starting to come on a little bit, but you know, the previous high level draft pick that they made, he has not turned out as positively as what they could have hoped. The Devontae Griffins or Devontae Graham, I'm sorry, signing has just been like not, not good. Let's go with, let's go with not positive toward the team's bottom line. Um, it, it, it's tough. It's really, really tough for me to, uh, look at what David Griffin has done when also taking into account the fact that he's now problems with JJ Reddick. He's now problems with Zion Williamson. Like he's now on coach number three. Like it's hard for me to look at this and go like, are we sure that David Griffin's the guy worth keeping if there's friction between him and Zion Williamson as was reported earlier today? I don't know, man. It's a complicated deal. I feel bad for Pelicans fans. That's ultimately my takeaway. But I think that at some point, Zion Williamson is going to talk, and we're going to hear from him before the end of the year. Uh, I don't think the people at CAA are dumb, and I think that 
they're probably starting to understand that Zion Williamson is doing a good job of tanking his value right now, not only in terms of his basketball value, but his off-court value, which is considerable if things go right for him as a player. So uh, I I would imagine that at some point here he's going to speak because uh, the people at CAA aren't stupid when it comes to brand management and image management. Tony, you're up. Bold prediction number one from you. Bold prediction number one for me. Bold prediction number one for me. Um, my bold prediction number one for me is the Los Angeles Lakers win one playoff series this spring. I I can't tell if that's a bold prediction in the like direction of negative or positive, <laughs> because if they make the playoffs and do well, like you can well, see it working. This point is- they've been a disaster. I think. They make a run on the second half of this schedule. They get up. They find a way to get up into the seventh seed or, or the sixth seed or whatever, and they find a way to win. I'm going to say they win. They, I'm going to say they win one playoff series. Yeah, would Lakers Over fans be happy? With any that? of the top three There's teams? Do you think Lakers can't fans they be, be happy, happy with that? With that? Baseball? Aren't they like 27 and 31 at this point? <laughs> Yeah, like they're not very good, but given what the expectations are with LeBron, like I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how that ends. Like if they don't win a playoff series, I know how that ends. Like that ends with all sorts of crazy changes and stuff. If they go on a run and like win, then LeBron's ecstatic and things go great. If they win one playoff series, that feels like the most complicated possible uh, outcome here. And I kind of love it, like from a chaos perspective. So like, let's do it. I'm in. This sounds like a great idea. Hey, I just think that, you know, LeBron's playing at, you know, I mean, he's playing at a top three level. Um, Get Anthony Davis back. You know, you you slow down a playoff series. Um, Guys can play 40 minutes especially in the first round where there's multiple days between playoff games. So you don't have to worry about physical attrition uh, as much as a second or a third round playoff series. And I, I just think that, you know, the Lakers are going to be a tough, a tough out if they make the first round, if they make it through the plan, because they might not make it through the plan. That's the thing. <laughs> they might not make it through the plan because right now, if, if, you know, I mean, there's a decent chance that they get the Clippers and a loser and losers out playing. And if you get the Clippers and losers out playing, then then guess what? You can lose that game, especially if Paul George is back. So if they make it through playing, I think the format of the first round combined with you don't have to worry about minutes and substitution patterns or whatever, and combined with the fact that LeBron is still playing – at an insane level, um, you know, the the Lakers are going to be a tough out in the first round. I think they'd need to get to the six. And I don't know if they can do that. I think that they would need, like, I don't think they can beat Golden State if Draymond Green is back. And I don't think that they can beat Phoenix because we've seen how that goes in the playoffs. Like, we watched that last year. Well, there, uh, there's two things. Phoenix I don't, is only better. Uh, there's two things. I don't think Phoenix, I don't 
I don't think they can beat Phoenix either. And I'm not sure Draymond's going to be uh, – I'm just not sure if Draymond will be healthy enough. Yeah. Um, there's some real concerns about his back. We'll see, though. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if Draymond is healthy, I agree with you. It's going to be hard. It would be hard for the Lakers to beat to be Golden State. But the third thing is there's a real decent chance that Memphis passes Golden State for that two seed. Yeah. Because yeah, because the Grizzlies schedule, um, they have a, a much easier landing than than the Warriors do. Yeah. So, you know, that's um that's something to um uh to to watch as well. So I know, that, need, that's my bold prediction. I, I need a seven game series. I don't just want, like I need it. I need a seven game series of John Morant, Jaron Jackson, Desmond Bain, and all those dudes who are completely fucking fearless in Memphis <laughs> talking all sorts of shit to this Lakers team with LeBron. <laughs> and LeBron like coming back at their like faces and trying to destroy them. I, I think that that's possibly the best first round possible like outcome in terms of entertainment uh, is a Memphis Lakers series. Like I, I kind of need that actually now that you say that. So I'm, I am in favor of the Lakers getting to the six just so Memphis can get to the three or getting to the seven if Memphis jumps to the two, but I need a Memphis Lakers series because the level to which Memphis is going to piss off LeBron and the Lakers is going to be just like so fun. Like I, I can't imagine a more fun setup for a first round series. You know, I I'm going to expand this and say that I'm looking forward to this entire NBA first round series to this entire NBA first round. Um, just I'm just really looking forward to it because. There are some there are some potential wars out there yeah. right now. Like there are some like the Nets are like they're gonna be, they you know they're on pace to be an eight or a seven at this point yeah. if they don't get if they don't get the ramp back and healthy uh any anytime soon. And you might be looking at a Nets Bucks first round mm-hmm. series or a Nets Heat first round series um or a Nets Sixers first round series. Um, you know, the, the, the Celtics are playing out of their minds. The lower seeds in the East are playing out of their minds right now, but the Celtics are playing out of their minds right now. And, you know, the Cavs and then, you know, you might have, um, you, you might have, you're either looking at Luca and Donovan Mitchell, or you're looking at Jokic and Rudy Gobert in a first round, in a first round series. I mean, there there are just some some real potentials for for some great series out there, and and I'm really looking forward to to this playoff right now. Okay, here is my bold prediction number two. I'm doubling down on one that I came up with with Anthony Slater about two months ago. The Minnesota Timberwolves don't make the play in; they make the playoffs. I am doubling down. I don't even know if I believe this, to be honest, uh, because Denver's going to get back Nikola Jokic. Dallas has kind of figured itself out. Uh, although the Dallas 
Kristaps Porzingis deal, I think makes them a worse basketball team. We'll see if that ends up being true, but it probably does because Kristaps is better than both Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Uh, he sets them up for future success, moving that deal. But nonetheless, for this year, I think it makes them worse. Uh, I am so, so in on watching this Memphis or Minnesota team. I'm also in on Memphis, but I am so in on this Minnesota team. I need Anthony Edwards, like screaming, yelling about how this is his house in Minnesota, yelling about how this is his house in a road playoff series more than I need anything. I feel like, like I, I almost as much as I need a Memphis Lakers playoff series, uh, it would be so fun to watch those young dudes with Carl Towns, with D'Angelo Russell, go up there and try and win a seven-game series against a team like Memphis, against a team uh, like Golden State, who they won't be afraid of. Uh, I I love this Minnesota team. I think Chris Finch has done a great job. Uh, do I think they are better than a Denver team with Jamal Murray? No, but you know we'll see what happens when Jamal Murray gets back. Do I think they're better than... Luka Doncic led Dallas, maybe, but they are four games back and four games is a lot to make up at this point. Um, but I think I think Minnesota is the surprise team that makes the playoffs. Tell me I'm wrong, Tony Jones. I, I think that I think that um, Denver is going to get Murray and, and, and Porter back and they're going to be fine and they're going to make a run at the five. Um I think Luca is playing out of his mind. Um, that's going to be enough to keep him in the six. I think we're looking at Minnesota as a seven or an eight. Um, but, you know, I don't want them as a seven or an eight because at that point they become a sacrificial lamb um, unless um, Memphis gets to a two. Then a Minnesota and Memphis series, that instantly becomes a really fun series. Um, you know, but, you know, we want Minnesota, you know, at, you know, you know, you want Minnesota at, as a, as a three, uh, in a six, three, or even a five, four. So they'd have to like play out of their minds to be in a four or five, but, you know, you want to see Anthony Edwards screaming, this is my house in the series that he actually has, that he actually has a chance to win. And if he's screaming at, you know, in Phoenix, you know, they eventually, you know, he's going to scream, this is my house in Phoenix, and they're going to lose in five games. So, yeah, he'll go know, for 45 you, in one game and they'll win and yeah, it'll be a gentleman sweep. <laughs> right. And it'll be a gentleman sweep. So, you know, you, you definitely want them to, if they want, if they're going to have a chance, you definitely want them um, to, to get up into the six. Um, possibly a seven if, if Memphis is a two, but you know, if they're, you know, if they're taking on Phoenix or Golden State, which is one of those teams that can match their talent and has just, you know, so much more experience than they do, uh, at that level, then, you know, it, it becomes less of a fun series for me. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Tony, you are up bold prediction. Number two from you. Um, bold prediction number two for me. I don't know how bold this is. Nikola Jokic wins his second consecutive MVP. Um, it's, I like it. I, I will say one that, of my, one of my ones on the last show was that I think Giannis comes up and steals it from him. 
But it was bold. Like that was the whole point of it. I think that undeniably, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid are the two favorites. The, the question I would ask you here is, how concerned are you about voter fatigue when it comes to Nikola Jokic? Because I, I, that's what scares me. He's undeniably like a worthy back-to-back MVP candidate for me. I, I just worry that people aren't going to reward it because they don't want to vote for him. Well, right now Denver's in the six, and the lowest, and I think Russell Westbrook winning when Oklahoma was a six seed. That's the lowest. That's the lowest uh, seed MVP that we've. Ever had what was Denver last year? No, three or four, I think. No, were they a three or four? Yeah, they made it to the second round. They were, yeah, they were, yeah, because they had Portland in the first round, so that that had to be it. They were, they they were the three last year, right? Okay, so they were the three, so you know, the, the bold prediction that comes out of it is that. You know, teams in this spot, uh, MVPs just don't come from teams in the sixth spot historically. It's done. It had. It's happened once, and that's that's what Westbrook when he had his uh, when he had his first triple double season. So, um, you know, but just you know, not having Murray all season, not having MPJ basically off season, all season, um, going through all of the COVID stuff, uh, um, you know. Basically, uh, not having Monty Morris for a huge chunk of the season, so he didn't have his top two point guards. You know, you're 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 counting on Bone Tiling uh, for for major minutes at a time. You're counting um, uh, you're you're counting on guys that you didn't think that you had to count on. You know, you had to reshape the roster a little bit. You had to trade Bobo. Um, you had to sign Demarcus Cousins to a slew of 10 days and finally re-sign him for uh, the remainder of the season. By definition, Nicole Jokic has probably been the most valuable player in the league this year because if you take Nikola Jokic away from Denver, uh, Denver's probably in the 14th or 15th spot in the Western Conference right now. So my bold yeah. prediction is that Jokic wins his second consecutive MVP. I think he'd be a worthy winner. I, I think that this Denver team without Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. is genuinely one of the three worst teams in the West um, and, and would be right in the mix for uh, the number one overall pick along with Houston. So I completely agree with you uh, that he's worthy. Do you have an MVP vote this year? I had one last year. Who did so... Yeah, I was gonna say. I don't know if you'll have one this year, will you? I don't know. I don't think I'll have one this year because it, it rotates in my market. So, right, you know, somebody else in my market will have the vote this year. So, in the case of Jokic, I just worry that there are going to be too many MVP voters that don't want to win. Don't want to have him win a second MVP when his team is in sixth. When there's still, unfortunately, this narrative out there that he's not one of the five best players in the league that is just fucking crazy and stupid and all of that. Um, I, I have significant worries that there's going to be voter fatigue. He'd be a worthy winner, though. He, he'd undeniably be a worthy winner. I, I would love for that to be accurate. I would absolutely love for him to win um, 
his second MVP, there's very few players more fun to watch in the NBA than Nikola Jokic, if not, uh, if not zero players more fun to watch in the NBA than Nikola Jokic. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break and we will be back with two more bold predictions each from Tony Jones and I. Okay. We're back. Tony, do you do you have one regarding the team that you cover in Salt Lake City? Do I have one regarding the team that I cover in Salt Lake City? I have one regarding Phoenix, definitely. Um, do I have one? Uh, probably my bold prediction for the Utah Jazz is that uh, they're going to be a significantly better playoff team this year than they were a regular season team. And the reason why I say that is because Mike Conley plays 28 minutes per night during the regular season. He's going to play 38 minutes per night in the postseason. And when the Jazz have Mike Conley on the floor, they are just an elite-level basketball team. Um, um, Rudy Gobert plays 33 minutes a night in the regular season. He's going to play 40 minutes per night in the postseason. And I think that there's going – and I think that the Jazz core – knows that this is it. If they don't get a um if they don't get a deep playoff run done this season, this team is going to look different next season. Um through some at in some level. So um my prediction um it's not I'm not predicting that they're gonna actually make that run, but I think that they're gonna be a much better postseason team than they have been a regular season team this year. So this is going to be fun because one of my bold predictions is that the jazz lose in the first round again. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know that I disagree with you that they're going to be a better team in the postseason. I just really worry about them running into a Denver team with Jokic and Murray in the four or five matchup. And I think that that presents them with significant problems in the postseason, uh, having to deal with Nikola Jokic. Uh, given how good Nikola Jokic has proven to be in the playoffs at this point, uh, that 4-5 series is going to be just an absolute bear. I-, I think that regardless of who they play, if it's Dallas, maybe they're in a little bit better of a position to deal with Dallas, but I, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to play Luka Doncic in a first-round series if I was Utah either. And especially the way that Luca is coming on over the course of the last month and a half or so, uh, where he's been, frankly, like we talk about, there are probably like seven or eight top five players in the NBA right now is this changing of the guard uh, at the top of the league occurs. He's one of them since he got into shape to start the year. And since he's adjusted to this new scheme with Jason Kidd, he's one of them that is undeniably uh, in the mix for being a top five player in the league. So I I wouldn't want to deal with him. I still just have so many worries about Utah's perimeter defensive game. And it was staggering to me that they decided not to go out at the deadline 
and try to address that and try to get Royce O'Neal some help because Royce O'Neal needs help on the perimeter. Like Royce is a really great defender. He can't do it on his own. And with the scheme that the Jazz play where everything is filtered toward Rudy Gobert, I think I think that part of the reason that Rudy has gotten the reputation that he has as a substandard playoff performer, where I think you would agree with me that like it's an unfair designation to a large degree. But I think that part of the reason is that those once you start getting into playoff situations like this, teams become so good at scheming against what you're doing. And you need to have dudes on both ends of the court that can break the scheme of what the opposing team is trying to do. The Jazz don't have any defensive scheme breakers on the perimeter uh, for when teams want to just, you know, stop essentially or want to try and get Rudy strung out on the perimeter or want to try and uh, just take pull up jumpers while Rudy is deep in a drop coverage scenario, right? They don't have the guys that can consistently fight over the top of screens at an elite level, not just like at an okay level. Cause I, again, like I don't want to disrespect Royce O'Neal. I think he's great, but like they needed another guy. Frankly, I think they probably needed two more guys to be able to be an offensive or really a defensive in their case, but a scheme breaker for the offense uh, on the defensive end. And I think it puts an undue amount of pressure on Rudy Gobert. I think it's unfair that every fault gets laid at his feet uh, def- uh, defensively in the playoffs, you know, and offensively, frankly, in the playoffs, it seems like everyone just wants to talk shit about Rudy Gobert once they get there. But I think that it's a team construct where it's a it's a team building issue where as much as i think that front office is absolutely phenomenal and i think justin zanuck is great and dennis Lindsay did a great job while he was running the show there i really think that this was a hole that they needed to fill and i think that they're going to struggle because they didn't well here's the thing and um I don't think that either Dallas or Denver can beat the Jazz in a series. And there, there are a couple reasons why either way. Um, I wrote, when, when the Jazz lost to the Lakers last Wednesday, I wrote that if the Jazz are able to play comfortable basketball, you know, run their offense, run their scheme, they're just an elite-level team. Yeah. You know, there's just no two ways about it. And – the things that make the Jazz comfortable are physicality, if you get into them and, you know, you just get into their faces with athleticism and physicality, that, that throws them off. If you know, you're know you able to switch and be physical with them, that throws them off. If you're able to add a small ball element, that throws them off. Denver can't do that to the Jazz. They just don't they don't have it on their roster. So yeah, Nicole Jokic. I I agree with you when that comes to Dallas, but I don't agree with that with Denver. I think Denver's actually really fucking tough. Like in the way that they present against opposing. They're tough. They're they're tough, but they're they're not they just don't throw the jazz off of what they want to do. Like, you know, I've you know, I've watched both of these rosters in the same construct for you know the last three games the last three years and the jazz you know they 
they run whatever they want against Denver. Denver defensively, you know, they were a little bit when they had Jeremy Grant and Gary Harris. You know, that bothered, you know, Gary Harris bothered Donovan Mitchell in game seven of, of that yeah. bubble series. And Jeremy Grant was able to to bother them a little bit. And Aaron Gordon bothers them a little bit. But other than that, they, they just don't have the defenders to really to really bother the Jazz. So this is what you would have. This is what you have with Denver and the Jazz. You would have Nikola Jokic going for 40 and 23 and 10 assists or whatever. And you'd have Denver scoring, you know, 118 points. And you'd have the Jazz scoring 123 because they'd be able to just run whatever they want. And yeah. the Jazz will win a six. And as for Dallas, you know, Luka can average 40 against the Jazz, but they don't have the firepower to beat the Jazz. They're not going to be able, they won't be able to make enough shots. So they would also lose in six. So I, I would I would favor the Jazz. You know, I, I think if the Jazz were to lose against one of those those two teams, it would be because of, it would be because of something that the Jazz didn't do right. Like if the Jazz were to play Phoenix, the Jazz could play A plus basketball, perfect basketball for seven games, and they could still lose the series because Phoenix still is that good. If the Jazz yeah. played A plus basketball against Denver or Dallas, they're winning that series because they're they're a better team than both of those teams. I know that Utah is three and zero against Denver this year. Like I, I know, and I know that that that, that, that doesn't also, mean anything. That that's what I think too. Because that doesn't mean no, none of none of those rosters, none of those rosters, and any of those guys. in game one, Jokic went out in at halftime, you know, so right. that didn't count. In game two, um, in game two, I think the Jazz didn't have angle. Jazz didn't have angles and. You know, a couple other guys that didn't count. Game three, like right. the Jazz didn't have Gobert or whatever, so none of that stuff counted. Like, and of course, you know, Jamal Murray talking, is now, has not been there for any of these right. games. You're you're talking about fully stocked both teams. Right. You know, it will be like 123 to 120. You know, the the things that bother the Jazz, like if you if the Jazz play Golden State, Golden State switching their physicality, the way they get up into you. The way they can put Dre at the five and force Rudy Gobert into different decisions, that will cause issues for the Jazz. If, if the Jazz played against Memphis, Memphis, the, the Grizzlies have the physicality and the athleticism to give the Jazz fits. They even gave the Jazz fits last year, and it was a gentleman sweep. It was just it was a it was a closer series than than people realized just because it was four to one. Um if the Jazz played Phoenix, you know, Chris Paul and Devin Booker were just eating in mid-range. And that kills that kills Utah's drop scheme. So there are structural things that that all three of those there are structural problems that all three of those teams present the Jazz. Dallas and Denver don't present structural problems for the Jazz. They can go out and especially especially because Dallas traded Porzingis. So the Jazz yeah. just go out and just play basketball against both of those teams, and you know when they when they get to play basketball and you know they don't have to deal with structural issues. They're just an elite level team. You know, that, yeah. If it's Dallas, if it's Dallas, it would require like Herculean, like Luka Doncic for all seven games, and they still might not win. 
Uh, like Dallas still like Luca could go for 40, 10 and 10 for seven games. And they still might not win those like four out of the seven games. You know what I mean? Like it just might not be enough. They might win. Like if Luca did that, but they might not. In Denver's case, I really, you know, for the same reasons that you're talking about, like Draymond Green being able to give Rudy problems in terms of like making him make different decisions defensively. Jokic does that and more is part of the issue. Like Jokic being able to play on the perimeter as much as he does now, like everyone's going to point to that series that, you know, Denver beat them back in 2020 where they won on like a, you know, it it came down to the final possession of the series, literally. And Jokic made a shot, right? The problem is that Jokic has gotten considerably better from that moment. Like he is, gone from being yeah he's probably like a top 10 top 12 player in the league at that point to being the mvp of the league and like a bona fide top five player who i think is just going to eviscerate literally everyone who's in front of him well so the dirty dirty secret of that is that quinn snyder doesn't put rudy gobert on Jokic. he uses rudy as a help yeah he uses rudy as a help guy and you know he throws bogdanovich on Jokic and he brings doubles and stuff so you know, I don't think you can do that anymore. If they have Jamal Murray in the lineup, that is. I don't think yeah, you can do that anymore. They and could. expect success in the playoffs. I, I just, I just don't think, I just don't think that Denver can throw the Jazz off kilter enough to, 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 to win that, to, to win a, to win a series against them. And I think that yeah. you're talking about Jamal Murray, you know, at peak Jamal Murray, and I don't think he'll be at That's peak true. Jamal Murray by the by the playoffs. Like, I mean, I think you know. I mean, he'll help, but I mean, you're talking about, you know, Jamal Murray that can go for 50 um, in, you know, in carry Denver, you know, in yeah. carry Denver when, um, and carry Denver when Jokic isn't on the floor. And not, not only do I not know that Jamal Murray can do that coming off of an ACL, but, you know, you still need a third guy. You know, Denver needed a third guy in the bubble to make shots. And, and, you know, who's the third guy, you know, MVJ has been out for basically the entire season with a bat. I just don't think, I, I don't think that Denver can cause jazz enough issues. Like I think that, you know, I think Denver can win the series. Like I think they're capable of winning the series, but yeah. you know, I would, I would not pick that. I would not pick the jazz to lose against the nuggets. No. Yeah. No, I'm with that. Okay. Your bold prediction is that they would be a better postseason team. And we kind of talked about that a little bit in terms of why. So give me your final bold prediction, Tony, for the Western Conference, because you wanted to talk about Phoenix. My final bold prediction is that, you know, Devin Booker is finally going to escape the shadow of Chris Paul. And he's going to play his way into one of the top five MVP candidates by the end of the season. I don't know if he can get into the top five, but I want to hear the take. I love it. Tell me more. I mean, I think that I just think that Devin Booker is just an elite level player. I think he's, I think that he's been, I think he's such an underrated playmaker because he doesn't have to do it. But I completely think that he's a guy that can go out and, and get you 30 points, eight rebounds, eight assists a night for the next six weeks and keep, uh, and keep Phoenix afloat without Chris Paul uh, until the postseason. 
So I think that's true. I just don't know if voters will vote for him in the top five if that ends up being the case. Like it's it's Jokic, it's Embiid, it's Giannis. I don't see any way that Devin's topping those three, barring injury, right? Do you think Devin has enough time to catch DeMar DeRozan? Yeah, they're the best team in the league. You think so? Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think Devin's a, probably a better player than DeMar, but I think DeMar has probably been more valuable through the first 60 games than Devin. And I wonder if voters would uh, default it, to the first 60 as opposed to the last 20. You know, well, my, I mean? thing, my thing is this. I mean, we know that Phoenix is 48 and 10 for a reason, and those two reasons are Chris Paul and Devin Booker. So yeah. if 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 the Suns still play at that level, um, if the Suns still play at that level, you know, with no Chris Paul and it's Devin Booker, then voters are going to be like, hey, you know, this this was a lot Devin Booker, you know, as well as it was Chris Paul. And you just flip flop the guys, you know, because Chris Paul was yeah. out for an extended period of time. So you you give Chris you give Devin Booker Chris Paul's Chris Paul's votes. So my my fourth bold prediction also had to do with Phoenix. And it's that Mikhail Bridges is going to win defensive player of the year. I firmly believe that Draymond Green on a per minute basis is going to be the most valuable defensive player in the NBA. Uh, if he comes back and if he gets to 60 games, if Draymond Green can get to 60 games, I think he should win defensive player of the year. He is at 34 right now, so he can't even get to 60. If he gets to 55, let's say, uh, I think he should win Defensive Player of the Year. I think he's been unbelievable. Uh, I think he has been absolutely the best defensive player on a permanent basis this year. I don't think he's going to play enough games. I don't think he's going to come back until they have like five games left in the season, if he comes back at all, uh, in the regular season. And because of that, because he's only going to be at like you know 40 to 45 games played this year, I don't think that voters are going to reward that. I don't know if they should reward it, to be honest. And because of that, it really opens up the voting. Because again, I think people are looking for a reason not to vote for Rudy Gobert. And people will say that's unfair. Uh, I think Rudy is one of the two or three most defensive, most valuable defensive players in the NBA. I think he's a better defensive player than Mikael Bridges. But if Mikael Bridges plays the whole season and Rudy Gobert plays, you know, what what's Rudy on track for? Like 60 games this year, Tony? Yeah, something like that. It'd be like 60, something like that. I think the voters are going to look for a reason to give it to someone else. And I think that the person that has the best case right now, outside of Rudy Gobert, outside of Draymond Green, and outside of Giannis, because I just don't know if, to, if they're going to want to give to Giannis either, is Mikael Bridges. And Mikael Bridges has been unbelievable defensively this year. You mentioned that you know it's on the back of Chris Paul and Devin Booker in terms of why Phoenix is as good as it is. I think that Mikael Bridges is not as important as those two, but he is a vital, vital piece in why the Phoenix Suns are as successful as they are. He takes on the toughest assignment every single night. He shuts down opposing players. He's one of the best help defenders in the league. He is absolutely elite. He is undeniably a first-team all-defense guy this year. Uh, it's just whether or not he wins the award. And I don't know if he'll 
beat uh, Giannis at the end of the day. But th- we're getting bold here. Like, that's the whole point here. The point's to have fun. Uh, and I think that the voters will look for a reason to give it to a perimeter player. That's been a narrative over the course of the last few years. Uh, if Draymond Green is not healthy enough to get the award, I'm going Devin or uh, I'm going Mikael Bridges for Defensive Player of the Year this year. Well, the two best defenders in the league this year have been Draymond and Rudy Gobert, and the most valuable yeah. defender this year has been Rudy Gobert by miles and miles and miles. And oh god, I so disagree. It's got. Uh, I think it's got to be Draymond Green. Nah, it, it, here's the thing. Um, when I say most valuable, I'm not saying best. I'm most valuable, even though I think that Rudy Gobert is the best defensive player on the planet. Um, if you watch the Jazz all the way up until maybe the last two games without Rudy Gobert, you know, they were probably one of the three worst teams in the league without him. Um, with him, they're one of the best 10 teams in the league. So... I mean, if you're looking at the word valuable and you're looking at the definition of valuable, there's nobody more valuable than Rudy Gobert defensively. And I don't think it's even close because Golden State's still a good defensive team without Draymond Green. They're just astronomical with him. So, I mean, yeah. but they're still they're still very, very, very functional without him. The Jazz are not functional. Yeah. The Jazz have not been functional on collectively without yeah. Rudy Gobert. Before the last, you know, last two or three games without Rudy Gobert, they, I was like, oh, okay, they're starting to defend a little bit without him. Um, but, you know, for 95% of the time that they have not been, that they have not had Rudy Gobert, um, they've, I mean, you know, they've, they've stunk on that end. So if you're looking at valuable, there's nobody more valuable than Rudy Gobert. It's just like, just like why you, there's nobody more valuable than Jokic right now. So, yeah. I mean, you can d- debate on, you know, where you have Draymond and, and Rudy Gobert as defenders. And, you know, I I personally side with Rudy because I just think that um, he's just so much better than people even think he is. Um, but, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to argue with you if you think that Draymond – is 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 better i mean you look at you know draymond's one of the best five to ten defenders ever but rudy's getting into that realm as well so you know i mean but that's neither here nor there there's a really good chance that neither one of those guys play enough games so you know but in failing that i probably think i think that you know a lot of people are going to vote for Giannis because of you know, the, the insane rim protection, the insane versatility, and, you know, his motor to affect every possession on both ends of the floor um, through 48 minutes of every night. Um, but I don't think there's much of a – I don't think that there's much of an argument that Mikael Bridges is the best perimeter defender in the league right now. And that, you know, he's – I mean, you know, you could put him on Stephen Curry one night. You could put him on Giannis the other night. You can put him anywhere in between. He can play. He can defend uh, four to five positions. Um, you know, his his wingspan eats space. Um, you know, he's you know he's great on the ball, uh, as well as you know, great in help side. Um, and he allowed the the biggest thing that he does 
is that he allows Monty Williams to not not allow to not have to require Chris Paul to play any defense at this point in his career. You know, Chris Paul gets a high because of Mikael Bridges. You know, so um, you know just how valuable he is to the scheme. You know, with you know, I, I I don't disagree with with you at all. I don't know if he wins it, but I do think that he. I do think that if if Gobert and and Draymond continue to not um, to continue to miss games, then you're looking at somebody who has a chance to be, you know, in that top three for sure. So the thing that so it's kind of a greatness versus like on off argument with Rudy and Dre, right? Like it's uh, the Warriors were so far in a way, drastically the best defensive team in the league when Dre was on the court this year that it's hard for me to pass that up. Like he is the scheme for them. Like they fell off a cliff whenever he was out, they figured it out now, like kind of how Utah has not like died defensively on every possession uh, without Rudy. Uh, They were a disaster without Rudy. Whereas with golden state, like they were bad without Dre, but like they weren't nearly as bad as Utah was without Rudy. But I think that Golden State is better with Draymond Green defensively than I think Utah is without Rudy defensively. How much of that is because of ancillary pieces? It's a great question. Uh, you know, it's not like the Warriors here. Stephen Curry's like a really smart team defender, but he's not, you know, an awesome on ball defender. Jordan Poole is not a great defender. Klay uh, Thompson in his return has not been a great defender so far. I think that with Draymond Green, the fact that they were literally the best defense in the NBA going away, it's hard for me to pass that up. And I'm going to be really interested to see what voters do with Giannis because the Bucks are outside of the top 10 defensively right now. And are they going to give the Defensive Player of the Year award to a player on a team that's outside of the top 10? I think in Giannis's case, there is a real case for it because... Well, they didn't have Drew Holiday. They haven't had Drew Holiday for like a lot of this season. You know, and they haven't had Brooke Lopez at all. The the Lopez one is the one that gets me. Like he's had to play such a significant role in terms of being their primary rim protector uh, throughout the course of the season. He's done a great job with it. That that kind of makes me wonder if they will award him. But man, Phoenix is elite defensively. Mikael Bridges is the best perimeter defender in the NBA. I don't know. I'll, I'll be, I will be very intrigued to see what the voters do. Uh, that's where I'm at, though. We each gave four bold predictions. Tony, do you want to talk about the draft before we get out of here? Do you have any ridiculous draft takes? I, I, I saw that smile. Here we go. <laughs> Let's go. Give it to me. What What is your ridiculous draft take? All right, I got my I got a ridiculous draft take right now. You ready? Let's go. I'm in. All right, my ridiculous draft take right now is I have Jaden Ivey at three and Paulo Bacero at four. Yeah, I do as well. That's not even a ridiculous thing. Oh man, come on! I was ready to hit you with, with, with like the oh yeah. I mean, I love okay. it. I'm here for it. Tell me why though. Give me, give me the reason why you love Jaden. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, he projects as a point guard at the next level, and you know he's. So you look at him right now and you look at the way he's able to get to the basket at the college level, right? 
and you look at how little space there is at the college level, just close your eyes and imagine how well he's going to be able to get to the rim in the spacing of the NBA. And um, Matt Painter doesn't even put the ball in his hands as much as as I think he should. Like, you know, I, th- I think that Jay Nyree is going to absolutely blow up in the NBA. I think he's going to blow up in the pro. I think, I think that he's uh, got a chance to be a franchise point guard. There are four franchise players in this draft. Uh, Chet, Jabari, Paolo, and Jay Nyree. What are we defining as a franchise player here? Like, are we talking like top two guys on a team or like best players on a team? No, I think those are four guys that have a chance to be all-stars in their careers. Okay. I I can live with all-star. I I think they each have a chance to be all-stars. I don't know if I'd go like franchise altering with any of them, frankly, maybe Chet. Like Chet might be the one that I think like he's so scalable to winning. I don't know if you're watching that Gonzaga USF game right now. He had a grab and go where he just like grabbed the ball off the glass, like sized the dude up on the perimeter, crossed him up, jumped from like a step inside the foul line and dunked it uh, yeah, like all in six seconds. He's got some, I mean, you, you said it, you know, the, the skill set that he has are so conducive to winning, right? Like, you know, he, he can switch for you. He can play drop for you. He's a tough kid. He rebounds the ball. He's a great passer. Uh, he stretches the floor. Um, and he has, he had, like, you know, you look at the kid and you think, you know, oh, my God, he looks like Obi Cunningham. But, I mean, he plays with a motor that, like, you don't have to teach his motor. Like, he plays with a motor every night. Like, I love Chet. I have him. Num- I know people have Jabari number one. I have Chet number one on my board. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I can't like I was on Jabari for a while. I was I was thinking that he was the one, but what we've seen from Chet over the last two months, I, I just can't. Oh, he's I can't a monster. Get past it. He's a monster. Yeah. He's a he's a straight up monster. Like if Oklahoma City gets him, they start winning next year. Here here's the real question. If if I was a team that had Chet and was able to draft Chet. And I had a second star like Shea Gilgis Alexander. If Oklahoma City gets him, that's the situation where I would consider trading for Zion Williamson to bring it back full circle. Because Chet is oh. the exact person that you put next to Zion Williamson to make him succeed. Okay, so all right, so what you're saying is if, you, if Oklahoma City gets the number one pick, you offer SGA and like two or three picks for Zion. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's the guy that you put next to Zion. Absolutely. No question. That that that's that's the move, I think. Like that's the way that you make Zion work. And that goes for a few other teams that like, you know, could end up theoretically with Chet. Like if you're Houston and you end up with Chet Holmgren and you can offer uh Jalen Green, uh, you know, Alperin Shengun and multiple you know, picks or whatever, including the third overall pick this year. Like that's one that I consider well, pretty strong. You know, the the Chet and Chet and Zion, I mean, like they're perfect for each other because um, you know, Chet's the guy that you want behind Zion defensively. And and you know, if you're picking Chet number one, you expect him to score twenty five a night. That's not Chet. 
so Zion can go out and score that 25 points a night that you would expect Chet to do. So, Right. Yeah, and I just realized I said that you trade the third overall pick. You'd be using that to draft Chet Holmgren, obviously. But like right. you'd move... Jalen Green, Shengun, multiple first round picks into the future. Um, I, I think that that would be anyone who dressed Chet, like that's, that's a move that I would explore with New Orleans. And I'm sure New Orleans would be like, no, fuck you. We want the pick. Like, what are you doing? Right. We're giving you Zion Williamson. But I, I think that that would be what I would try and do, especially if I was Oklahoma City. Like, that's a fascinating idea for me if I was Oklahoma well, City. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City has enough picks. That if New Orleans is like, yeah, we want the pick, you know, it's like, look, we can't give you our picks this year, but we can give you like four or five other picks, you know, to kind of make up for that. So, um, and and that's probably that's probably what you do. My other big thing, you know, I know that people are kind of down on him because he's a little old, but I think Keegan Murray is going to be an all star in the league. Okay, make the pitch. I, I like. I, I've come around on Keegan to a real extent. I wouldn't say he's going to be an all star, but it's taken me a while. But I've come around on him. I, I'd love to hear why you want to. Why you think he's an all star? Just too productive and too skilled, man. Like he's just gonna. He's just gonna get into the league and he's just gonna produce, like right off the bat. And you know he's not going to be a perennial all star. Like he's not going to be a year and got all star. But he will make at least one all star game in his career. I think I'm with that. The thing that I see with him is I see a lot of Tobias Harris is what I've been saying. Like I, yeah. I see a lot of like really high level shooter, really efficient uh, mover without the ball. Like I think Tobias doesn't get enough credit for how smart he is without the ball, uh, just in the way that he finds the little areas to succeed. Um, I think Keegan's going to be able to shoot off of like minor movement. Like they run him off of flare screens all the time at Iowa and he's really successful doing that. Um, I think that that's the kind of role Tobias has been a borderline all-star at times. Hasn't made an all-star team yet. Um, you know, if things go differently, you know, and a couple guys get injured in one of the seasons where he was elite, like that season with doc rivers when he was with the Clippers, right? Like, maybe we'd be talking about a guy who's an all-star, right? So I, I don't think that's crazy. I have Keegan at seven. Like I, I would, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate saying that he's going to be an all-star. Like, I think it's a reasonable, reasonable take that he makes an all-star once. And here's my crazy take. Uh, I think Paolo Bancaro is going to be a walking 2010. Um, um, in his career. Um, but I do not think that he is the best NBA prospect on his roster right now. Who is it? AJ Griffin. Not crazy. Yeah. I have AJ, I think at five, um, Apollo at four. I, 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 I think Paulo is a tier ahead of AJ, uh, in terms of talent, uh, maybe not in terms of talent, but in terms of the upside upside. I think I think the, the 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 difference between Paolo and AJ is that AJ is the two way wing that everybody is going to covet. Yep. Yeah. It's a it's a certainty versus upside argument. Like yeah. with Paolo, I feel very certain he's going to be a good NBA player. With oh, AJ, absolutely. I'm I'm pretty sure he's going to be good. Like I I feel pretty good about it. But there's still some. 
risk factor there. If the ball handling doesn't totally come around, if, you know, I, I think that we haven't gotten to see the best of him athletically at Duke this year, just because Duke is so big that the court in, in the college game is so condensed because there are so many limbs and bodies flying around in the paint that I feel like we haven't gotten a chance to see AJ like really, you know, explode athletically in the way that I think he can. And plus he's coming back from, you know, a year off and an injury in the preseason still, obviously. So I think that we're going to see him look more athletic as his career in the NBA unfolds. But yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's real possible. I mean, who, who, who's your sleeper? You have, you love trying to find these dudes that like are under the radar and uh, that you love, like who, who are your guys like end of the first round that you really like? I like the Williams kid for Purdue. I do too. I, I think he, I have him I like think, in the middle of the first round right now. Uh, I think he goes end of the first, I, but I'm with you. I literally think he might be the best passer in this draft. Oh, did you not say, did you say, I thought you said the Williams kid from Duke. Who did you say? No, no. From Purdue, the big kid. Oh, Trevion. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. here we go. He's up there. He's a great yeah. passer. Oh, I think he I think he's the best passer in this draft. And I think that so, you know, the first thing I saw when I when I watched him, the first thing I was like, oh, I was like, you know, he's Biggie Swanigan all over again. So I don't know that, you know, he's athletic enough. But then you watch him. He's more athletic than he looks. And I think he plays with hunger that leads me to believe that he's gonna keep his that he's gonna keep his weight where it needs to be. And if he keeps his weight where it needs to be. This kid is going to do so many things on a basketball court at the NBA level that's going to make him a high-level role player that's going to be conducive to winning. And somebody is going to draft him in the mid-30s, and that kid is going to help that team win at a high level. How much do you think he can defend? That's, That's where I'm struggling with him. Yeah, you gotta have him. You gotta have him next to somebody that can defend. But I mean, you know, I mean, he's you know, he's like a really, really skilled version of Xavier Tillman. You know, like he's a grown man, and he does a lot of things with the like. You can legitimately play through him because he passes the ball so well. I don't mind that. I think he's a second rounder. Like, I think he goes somewhere right. in the second round. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind that. Who do you have any freshmen that you're like in love with? Cause that's the thing in this draft. Like everyone's trying to find like the super young, like under the radar player. And I, I'm starting to think it's just Malachi Branham at Ohio state. Like, I think that's the guy, but like, yeah. I know you like Blake Wesley, don't you? Like you're, you love uh you were a big fan of Blake um, early in the I season. Love- I know that. Big fan, big fan of like Wesley. Love, love guards with his size and 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 his ability to to play. Um, I'm a big fan of the kid from Baylor. Um, you know, I think that his upside. Which one, is Jeremy Sohan or Kendall Brown? No, Kendall Brown. Oh, yeah, I like Kendall a little big. bit more. I go back and forth on them like every week. It feels like, but I think I like Ken. I think I'm like. Almost settled yeah. on the fact that I like Kendall a little bit more because he's more fluid athletically and because he's an unbelievable help defender. Yeah. Unbelievable. He, I think he's unbelievable defensively. Um, you know, so, I mean, that that's probably the freshman that I think 
has a chance to like if there's any freshman that has a chance to like really sneak into that top five, it might be him. Well, AJ Griffin, obviously. Um, but yeah. you know, he's got a, he's also got a chance to, and the thing about it, like with Kendall Brown, like he projects as a three and you look at what Mc, what Bridges is doing, you know, and you look at Kendall six, seven, six, eight, you know, teams salivate over that size on the perimeter with that kind of wingspan. And he's already, you know, he's already advanced at the hardest part of the game at the NBA level, which is the defensive part. So, you know, if you bring Kendall Brown in, what do you have to develop, right? You have to develop the shooting. You have to develop the ball handling. And that's just kid busting his ass, getting his in, getting into the gym and working his ass off. But the stuff that you can't teach, the IQ defensively, the acumen defensively, he's got that. And, and he's a six-foot-eight wing. You know, those things just don't grow on trees. Somebody's going to take him really high in the first round. And he jumps like he's jumping on a trampoline. Like it's unbelievable. Oh yeah. Um he's he's yeah. a freak show yeah. athlete. No, I'm I'm a big fan. I, I have him in the late lottery right now. Um most teams are real hit or miss on him, I'll tell you that. Like some teams think he's like a late first rounder. Other teams think he's where I have him. Um his like teams are really worried about his shooting and really worried about his offensive game. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, man. It's, it's well, yeah, well, let's ask, let's ask, answer this, right? O'Carroll is helping Cleveland significantly, right? And he's doing it, and he's doing it just off of his ability defensively. Like, he can't make a shot. We all know that Isaac O'Carroll can't make a shot at this point in his career, but he's still really valuable to them because night after night, you could put him on the best perimeter offensive player on the other team. And he makes that, that team, that guy's night that he met, he puts that guy in hell that night. And Kendall Brown is bigger than O'Carroll. And as good of an athlete O'Carroll is, Kendall Brown's a better athlete. You know, so, I mean, you look at it. I mean, yeah, the shooting, the shooting matter. I mean, the shooting absolutely matters. But like in this league where you can't touch anybody, People who can defend on the perimeter in that kind of a frame, I mean, their their value just it just goes through the roof. The the thing so so here's what I would ask you. If Cleveland put Isaac Okoro on the trade market and asked for a pick back in this draft, what pick do you think they would get back? They get a, a mid first pretty easily. And that's what worries me about taking him like in the top like nine or 10 in projecting him to be like, Oh yeah. He's like Isaac Okoro. Right. Like you're probably not getting value commensurate with like a top five or six pick. If you take him at the top five and take him in the top five or six. And you think he's like just a defender. Yeah. And I, like, I think that the jumper is going to take a lot of time with Kendall. Like he has like an elbow flaring consistently. He has um, just like some real issues. Like he doesn't really take him off the hop ever. It's all just like a left, right, one, two step in. Um, only takes him when he's wide open. Like it's going to take a lot of time with Kendall and the jumper with the passing and the ball handling. Like he has all that stuff. Like I think he can really pass it. I think that he can actually handle the ball. Like you look at the way he operates in the open court. Whenever teams put him in tighter spaces, like two guys collapse on him to try and stop the ball he can kind of cross over and like make some moves in the open court to be able to continue down the court and eventually make a pass or, you know, uh, 
make a shot at the rim, dunk the ball, et cetera. But that's why I think like more in the, I think you're right in terms of like, I think Coro would probably get like a pick in the 15 to 20 range, like a post lottery pick. But that's why I think like taking Kendall Brown, like, you know, 13 is probably but I think, more. I think Okoro, I think Okoro's lived up to the four selection just for Cleveland because what they've needed from him, he's given them. Like he's given them a perimeter stopper. He's given them a guy that can get out and do things in transition. Now, I say this with the caveat that they absolutely have home runs on two of those picks. Like they hit the home run on Garland. They hit the home run, obviously, on Mobley, and they, and they really, they've actually hit the home runs. And like I thought that Laurie Marketing was going to be a disaster signing for them, and he's been really, really good for them. I, you know, I thought I was like, why are they signing Ricky Rubio to take the ball out of Darius Garland's hands? And Ricky Rubio was not only phenomenal for them on the floor, but he was phenomenal for that culture um, in the locker room. You know, so you know. Everything that they've done around that Okoro pick has made it so that they've only needed a few of the things from Okoro. Like they didn't need Okoro to be a star. They just needed him to come in to defend and rebound and and be the guy that can switch everything and 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 and, and lock up on the perimeter. So, you know, I mean, not everybody's going to need that. Like, you know, ninety percent of the team that draft somebody at four, they're going to need more than what Cleveland is needed from a curl. But because Cleveland was so good in the other spots of their development in their front office selections, they've only needed a curl to come in and do uh, a narrow uh, thing in terms of role. And he's done, and, and he's one of the better perimeter defenders in the league. I totally get what you're saying. But imagine if they'd taken Tyrese Halliburton. Like, just then you don't have to move for Rubio in the summer. And you can use that pick to be able, you can use that asset to go out and get something else. You don't, you honestly, if you take, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, you don't have to go out and trade for Karis LeVert, to be honest. Um, So it's, it's tough. Like, it's, imagine if Phoenix took Tyrese Halliburton. They should have. That was the mistake. That was the real mistake. Yeah. Like that was the real mistake. I, I, yeah. T- taking Jalen Smith is the one where like that's just like incredibly poor decision making. Um, you, you ended up using the tenth overall pick on half of a season of Tory Craig, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So, Tony. Yeah. It, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Tell tell them. To, to all, all the stuff. What do you got coming up? Like, what's what's going on here? Well, we're ramping up for the bit for the second half. Of, well, not the second half. We're already in the second half, but we're ramping up for the last twenty five games of the season. Um, go read my stuff on the Athletic. Go follow me at T Jones on the NBA. And you know, me and Sam, whenever we get on game theory, we end up going an hour and a half. That's right. It it just never fails, man. Like it never fails. I'm so glad we did this. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back next week. Matt Penny and I will be talking NBA draft. I'll have some NBA stuff once the season gets going again. Uh, Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.